Hello, friend. Welcome back. Nice to see you. Thank you, as always, for listening to The Tully Show. I'm sure you are as delighted as I am to see this week's guest is our returning friend, Adam Mastriani of the experimental history blog to make psychology and life itself intelligible to us, the common man. Real quick, before we speak to Adam yet again, a reminder, patreon.com slash Mike Tully. In the past seven days alone, I've taken a critical look back at the seminal Fleetwood Mac album, Rumors, a critical look back at the history and cultural events that made 1991 the year it was, and I have taken a critical look back at the absolute dumbest and most mindless news stories of the week on the weekly wrap-up show, Tully Time. That and so much more is waiting for you exclusively at patreon.com slash Mike Tully, patreon.com slash Mike Tully. Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before, and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Coming to you live on tape from an above-ground basement in rapidly gentrifying Culver City adjacent California, boasting a partially obstructed view of the world-famous Hollywood sign. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, making his highly anticipated Tully Show return, a postdoctoral research scholar at Columbia Business School and an emerging subsex superstar. Hello and welcome back, Adam Mastriani. What's up? Thanks for having me back. Yeah, it's been uh, what, like two, two, three months since you were here. How has your life? How has your life changed in the wake of your historic appearance on this podcast? Um, I get recognized in the street all the time. I, po- I apologize um, for that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so I can't really live a normal life anymore. Um, I'm mostly underground. Uh, so I'd say mostly for the worse. Uh, and I'm here to make it even worse than that. So thanks for having me back. Price of fame, baby. Welcome to the mm-hmm. big, welcome to the show. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so you, you've continued blogging at a feverish pace. Are you circulating the, 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 uh, the quasi soft intellectual light non-fiction, non-fiction scientifically informed guide to life book proposal as we speak? Uh, I, I have been approached by some literary agents who want exactly that uh-huh. from me right. in, in those exact words. Can you be <laughs> a little softer, a little lighter? Yeah. Uh, can you we're make dumb people feel little... smart? <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, can we put, can you write something that we can put in an airport bookstore that people then throw away when they get off the plane? Um, and my answer is, uh, oh baby, can I? Sure you um, can. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm holding out. Uh, I want I want I want to write something, but I want to write something that uh, is worth having a physical object in your house, like forever, right? Like because books are the kind of thing that like you shackle yourself to your books. I just moved uh, with my fiance, and like these books are uh, like like uh, uh, those old timey like big iron weights that they used to have like put on prisoners. Yes, um, and so the yeah, so I want to write one of those that people are happy to have attached to themselves. So I think it's going to take a while. Um, yeah, you definitely you, you you're you, the ideas that were once your darlings become less precious when I'm I'm not even exaggerating. I believe I've moved ten times in Los Angeles, 
and I moved out here with like 40 metric tons of books from Brooklyn. And, yeah. and, and now I think I'm down to my copy of the Motley Crue book, The Dirt. <laughs> it's literally <laughs> the only book that after all those moves made the cut. I, I understand what you're saying. Well, um, yeah. I would like to think that uh, a, a number of people who heard you on this show the first time you were here who were not previously familiar with you have been spending time reading you in lightweight online form, at least in the meantime. I tried, frankly, Adam, to take your advice and to break my addiction to the news. And um, I don't know that I doom scroll, but I do just mm -hmm. like annoy myself with how much scrolling that I that I've done because I the thing is you, you need to replace the old addiction with something new. And I really, really have tried between medium and substack to find things that I would rather read because I don't not yeah. all that excited about looking at Drudge Report for the eighth time that day. Um, <laughs> and, and frankly, and I'm not just saying this because you're here. Yours is the only blog I actually care to consistently read. So if they were if they well, were. How do you to say there were 50 more of you out there i could finally stop going to fucking reddit to hear millennials complain about how they can't move out of their parents house again <laughs> uh yeah what what does that story go from uh like a little bit charming maybe it's already gone from charming to uh completely tedious because like when you're th when you're 28 it's like oh man it's tough for you when you're 32 it's like uh and when you're 37 it's like, you just live there. Like, you're not planning to move out. You just are there. No, you're just waiting for them to die is what it is. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, you know, because I'm, I'm at that age. I'm, I'm, I'm 45. I'm so out of touch with... I used to work in an office where at least there were like a lot of fresh-faced youngsters running around where I could convince myself because we had banter occasionally about, you know, what I considered bands, what they considered classic rock bands, that I was mm -hmm. in touch with the youth. And, and now I don't have that point of tangent anymore. And I'm trying so hard to resist the... We were happy to have unpainted interns. We that's it was called getting your foot in the door, you know, where I'm like it's there my my um, I believe that my take is correct based on my experience, but my experience mm -hmm. is not theirs, but god damn is it really that hard? Can't one of you Adam you you're not living in your parents' house? No, uh, <laughs> uh I live in, in an apartment like a real boy. Uh, <laughs> well done. <laughs> Um, at great expense. Uh, sometimes yeah. I'm like, but why? Um, especially I was living in a place in New York that it had rats, it had roaches, it didn't have hot water sometimes. You know, like the kind of the, the normal things that you hope from a department, it didn't have any of that. Yeah. I was like, why don't I just instead like just dig a hole and lie down in it? It would cost me way less. <laughs> uh, and my landlord agreed. Yeah, um, well, he still thinks I owe money. He's not getting a cent from me. Yeah, well, some tragedy plus time equals comedy. Someday you will miss that uh, <laughs> that septic disaster. <laughs> so let's talk about some of your recent um, posts. You had yeah. one which was which had the uh, Substack sphere all a Twitter again entitled "Why Aren't Smart People Happier?" and it's an interesting question. Because it's one of these things that we all know is true. I think we almost associate high intelligence with higher rates of neurosis and or depression. And yet, when you take a step back, as you have, and think about it, it makes no sense. The biggest sources of unhappiness ought to be problems, and having mm -hmm. higher intelligence ought to enable you to solve problems better than dummies. And yet, if it doesn't seem that smart people are any happier 
than less intelligent people. If anything, the opposite might be the case. Now, for starters, to what extent can we even measure these sorts of things? Yeah, it's a great question because before you measure them, you have to define them. And this is where I think a lot of people get hung up, that they're like, there is a thing called intelligence and it's just objective what it is. And the only question is, are we able to measure it? And you can call whatever you want intelligence. Uh, like there is a thing that we kind of colloquially call intelligence, um, but like you could have defined it any way you wanted to. And I think this is part of the problem that we've defined it in a way that is easiest to measure, which is the way that like you can make a bunch of multiple choice questions and give them to people and see how they score and go, okay, your IQ is X and that's how smart you are. And I think it's part of the problem because any kind of intelligence that can't get measured isn't going to be part of the definition of intelligence because, well, we can't assign a number to it. So, so like that isn't real intelligence, but, but I think the only reason to call intelligence one thing versus another is because it's useful. Um, I mean, that's what words should do is they help us like usefully describe the world. They're completely arbitrary. We can use them however we want. So we should use them in a way that's useful. And so I think using the word intelligence to only describe the kind of intelligence that gets measured on intelligence tests misses all the kind of intelligence that we know is really important for living your life. We have a really hard time measuring it because it's not well-defined. And so in, in the post, I make this argument that there's this big difference between well-defined problems, which are the kind of problems that you can write a multiple choice test about, and poorly defined problems, which you can't. Like the problem of like, how do you live a life that makes you feel good? You can't like give people four options and have them pick one. Um, and so I think when we define tele intelligence in that narrow way, that it's only about solving these well-defined problems, we run into this problem of like, wait, but all these people who are supposedly really smart are really dumb in these other ways. Um, and right. I think about like the professors who like, uh, uh, who are constantly getting like, uh, kicked out of, out of universities for like sexually harassing their students or like, uh, associating with known pedophiles. And it's like, those are dumb things to be clear. Like they're also immoral things. But if you're a smart person, you wouldn't do those things. You wouldn't be like, huh, why don't I give the, uh, the pedophile, uh, an office in my building, uh, <laughs> You wouldn't do that. Like, that's a stupid thing to do. Uh, and so to say this person is smart, it's like, well, obviously they're smart in some ways, but they're very dumb in this other way. And so we're missing something from this definition. That's part of the argument I'm making. Right. You posit, for example, that your own grandmother is significantly smarter than uh, chess. Oh, I don't want to say grand wizard. What do they call the person? Grandmaster? <laughs> Grandmaster. But yeah. I mean, in this case, he's also kind of a grand wizard. Bobby Fischer, uh, <laughs> which I didn't know. Uh, if you look into it, the dude said some pretty heinous things about Jews. It's wild. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, he, he, he clearly had some kind of mental disturbance going on, but we can all agree you need a lot of cognitive horsepower to be really good at chess. No one's going to disagree with that. But then to go on what he did, a radio station in the Philippines and, and be like, uh, also Jews are bad and Hitler is good. That's a dumb thing to do. Uh, my grandmother would not win a chess match against Bobby Fischer, <laughs> but she would know not to do that second thing. So like, what what are our measures missing that that don't take that into account? Why is it after all this time so hard to create um, an unbiased test of intelligence? Because well, I understand it's not a moving object. I understand that it's sort of you, you, to achieve the ultimate goal of really thinking clearly is a fool's errand. The very fact that we all understand what I mean when I say that and basically agree with me in and of itself demonstrates how far we've come because I believe that the mm -hmm. people who made the initial IQ tests also thought they could tell you something about my personality by massaging my skull. So how is it? <laughs> 
that we could go from that class of people making IQ tests um, to nowadays where we're constantly self-doubting, constantly saying, okay, now what am I missing? Please, everybody, criticize me. I'm trying desperately to be as bias-free here. It seems like in the same way that, you know, ivory soap is like 99.44% free. It seems like it used to be very, very, very biased. Nowadays, it should be possible, it seems to me, on the outside looking in, to make something that is virtually bias free and yet you seem to think and i don't think you're alone in thinking this that we're not really very close to that and maybe it's not possible for us to get very close to that yeah it depends on what you mean by bias if by bias you mean that like there are some groups of people who have some form of intelligence that doesn't get tested by the test and so they look dumb on these tests um but it's mainly because they aren't the kind of person who made the test in the first place if they had made the test it would make it in a different way people have been working on that for a long time and i don't actually think that that's the biggest problem in intelligence testing because if you look at our modern tests they don't have the kind of things that i think people associate with like bias and tests anymore which are like analogies like a yacht is to a regatta as a bike is to like those things are gone, which is good because obviously those are stupid questions that are going to advantage some people over others. Um, but what's what isn't on the test, I think, are things that can't be on the test. And the point is that they're untestable. Um, so are, the they, kind are, of things are, are they, though, like I, I, I understand what you're basically saying is, well, no, not basically what you're saying is. We can teach people uh, algebra, and then we can test them on algebra. That's a well-defined thing. Yes. It's, it's We don't currently, it, and it seems almost silly to say, uh, hey, go in a room full of strangers and figure out how to become the life of the party. Yeah. It's, it, it's easy to see how that that is a form of social intelligence. That's an advantageous problem-solving skill that will probably get you further in life than the algebra stuff. But it while it is harder... Is it, do you believe, or is there reason to believe, it is truly impossible for us to to measure those sorts of things in some basically useful, basically general way? Yeah, I don't think it's completely impossible. I do think part of the problem is the, the, the definition in the first place of what goes in there. Um, that I mean, people have argued for decades as to like whether we would consider that social skill part of someone's intelligence. Um, and I think the reason why people argue about it is because like, well, it just kind of doesn't seem like the thing that we call intelligence um, and whatever. This comes back to the problem of like, we can use words to mean whatever we want to. What's a useful way of using this word? Like we could just call it a different, we could say like, there's this kind of intelligence, there's skill at solving well-defined problems, the kind of person who's gonna score really well in the SAT. And hey, that's great. That clearly makes a big difference in some of your life outcomes. And there's this other kind of intelligence that like, we don't really have good tests for, but you can kind of tell that some people have it and some people don't because like their lives go really well, regardless of how much of the test taking ability they have and other people's lives go really poorly. Um, and some of those people are people who score really well on the other test. Um, I mean, like these professors who, uh, who don't know how to keep it in their pants, like, uh, like they're clearly dumb on some level. Um, we don't have a test for that. Let me ask you something that I'm not sure that you, you, you would, you tackled in this blog post, it seems to me that smarter people aren't necessarily happier and in many cases engage in like more self-defeating behavior. Mm. You know, uh, they outsmart themselves sort of in life. And in my experience, that applies equally to people who were book smart, ahead of the class valedictorian, and people I know who 
weren't particularly great in school, but just did sort of possess this sort of like people who have this more hazily defined. This is just he's one of the smartest people I know. He almost flanked flunked out of college, but he is one of the smartest people I know. It doesn't seem to me that book smart people are less happy. It does actually seem to me that smart people, if they're not less happy, they're at least not appreciably happier than average intelligence people. Yeah, and that's borne out by the data. So people have been measuring this in different ways for decades, different ways of measuring intelligence, which, by the way, all correlate with each other. I think that's part of the problem um, and different ways of measuring happiness. Um, and you never really you never find a strong correlation between them. And normally you find no correlation between them. So I did some of this analysis myself in the post. Um, and so it might be on the the extremes on either side that things change, but most of the people aren't in the extremes. So what we can certainly say is for people who are uh, not super far on one side or the other, there's not much of a relationship between what we've defined as people's intelligence uh, with these tests and what we've defined as people's happiness uh, with these questions. Um, uh, so, yeah, so I think when you see people who seem like oh, they're smart, but they're outsmarting themselves. I think that might be one reason why what we call problem-solving ability doesn't get you more happiness. Um, another reason why might be the hedonic treadmill, which is uh, the, the tendency to adjust to whatever circumstances uh, you encounter in life. Although there we know that's not unlimited. So it is the case that like, uh, if your spouse dies, you will be less happy, maybe not forever, but for quite a while. If you lose your job, you will be happy uh, pretty much as long as people continue to measure your happiness. Um, so like these things do matter. So people really can get small, uh, uh, happier or less happy, um, which you might think would mean like, well, okay, if you have more problem solving ability, shouldn't you be able to ratchet yourself up that ladder? Um, right, right. So this is, a, this is a different blog post that I wanted to ask you about. So did you coin the phrase hedonic treadmill or is that a thing that's out no, there? No, that, that is, uh, it's actually a, a sort of funny and devastating, not more devastating than funny, but the guy who coined that phrase, um, who ran this like famous study back in the late 70s, I think, showing that, and this has since been questioned, but people who win the lottery uh, in that study were no more happier than people who became paraplegic. It turns out that that finding tends to be overstated. We really do think that winning the lottery makes you at least a little bit happier. The tragic end of it is that guy died by suicide. He threw himself off a building. Um, I mean, that is the the greatest hedonic treadmill, but like, you're the guy who knows how hard it is to get happier. And like you, it came for you basically. The, the treadmill threw him off. Well, and it kind um, of it kind of makes sense. Not to say obviously that he went looking to prove his point because that's mm-hmm. you know the antithesis of what science is supposed to be. That having been said, of course, people do that all yeah, all the time. It seems that somebody who was per, uh, personally plagued by the fact of I've got everything. Yeah. I feel like I've got everything. So why am I not happy? That seems like yeah. a pretty good recipe for somebody who would take their life uh, later in life i've quoted that thing so many times to where that's a real that's a real thing i've said that so many times and you're telling me it's a bit overstated but at least i didn't make it up that people who went because yes. i'm like wait a second did somebody really sit down and ask a bunch of lottery winners and paraplegics about their state of mind because to do that you would need to catch a bunch of people like very shortly after they won the lottery and then talk to them a year or two later and you'd also have to be going around uh, uh, like a ghoul in uh, in in hospital wards, finding people who had recently yeah. lost limbs, and you're saying this is a real person who did conduct it, this. It, it's a real study, and and where it tends to get overstated is two in two ways. One is that this, the sample is really small, so it's hard to draw any strong conclusions from it. And there did turn out to be a difference. The the people who won the lottery were happier than the people who couldn't use their arms or legs, just not to the extent that you would expect. 
Um, and that happens over and over again, that people think that these things are going to make a big difference in their lives and they turn out not to. Um, uh, my advisor, Dan Gilbert, uh, the guy I got my PhD with, uh, kind of made his name on uh, running these studies where like, you track professors before they go up for tenure and everybody predicts like, if I get tenure, I'm going to be happy. And if I don't get tenure, I won't be happy. And be you follow up with them later and they're both just as happy as they ever were. Um, right. Well, the, 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 the lottery one makes sense because, um, it's uh, judge Judy actually put this really eloquently on, uh, Norm Macdonald's really terrific Netflix interview show, which everybody should watch if they haven't. And if they've seen it, they should watch it again, where she, he talks about what is it like being so freaking rich? And she says, it's, it's an absence of a negative. She said in everybody's life, there are sources of stress and I still worry about the same things that you worry about. I just don't also worry about money. And so that yeah. is the person who wins the lottery and doesn't squander it all on uh, on crack within a couple of years will have the presence of mind of not getting that bill and going, oh fuck, I was already screwed and now I gotta pay, I gotta pay that. So it does make sense that winning the lottery would make you a little bit happier than yeah. losing the use of one or all of your of your limbs. See, there's a quote I copied from your blog on your post on the hedonic treadmill. Hedonism is the word that we're you know using a variation on here. Mm -hmm. If it's not totally clear. You say we're all on treadmills, of course, and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with sweating and straining a little. The problem is thinking you're going somewhere. <clears throat> True happiness actually comes from realizing that you cannot get any closer to your destination. And in fact, there is no destination at all, only a journey. All we have to do is accept it. There's a small part of me that does accept that. There's a much larger part of me that still calls bullshit. Hmm. And I guess that's the idea, huh? Yeah. Well, I mean, it makes total sense, right? That like, if we stopped believing that mm -hmm. the things that we do uh, or the choices we can make could possibly make us better off, um, then like, why would we do any of it? Like the humans who felt that way didn't survive and reproduce and we are not their children. We are the children of the anxious humans who thought that like everything was hinging on the next thing that they do. And so we feel a similar way. Um, well, let, let me ask you this. Um, <clears throat> uh, USC film school, right? I don't know, class of 1968 or something. There's 100 or 500, probably mostly men, maybe a few women that all um, graduate with realistic hopes and dreams that they will go make a name for themselves and perhaps a legend for themselves in, in, in Hollywood making movies. One of them is George Lucas. Un absent extraordinary mental or emotional disabilities, how would George Lucas not look back on his career with a sense of satisfaction far exceeding that of everyone else that he graduated from USC film school with? You know, factoring in the fact that some people are just happy-go-lucky and, hey, maybe, yeah. you know, maybe I ended up running the coffee shop at the farmer's market. That's good, too. How does it not feel great to look back on your life and go, I made freaking Darth Vader? Yeah. I mean, I wonder if he feels that way. Or I wonder if he feels like, wow, I did something great and then it became a corpse and now people make money, uh, like, pillaging <laughs> the corpse. Right. Uh, like. Uh, nobody, nobody likes the like remakes that I made. I think I made them better. Everybody disagrees. <laughs> right. Uh, now Credo, a bunch of Credo did hates. shot first. God damn it. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, well, I don't, I don't know how he feels. Um, but, but I, I would say that like, 
again, we do know that things can make people reliably happier or less happy. They just tend to be extreme and to a less extent than people think that they will. Um, and that's, I think, the big mistake that people make, that it feels like everything that you do is going to dramatically change how you feel. And they just won't. Most of them won't. Um, and in fact, most of them won't change the way you feel in the way that you hope or as long as you hope. Um, but this goes positively and negatively. So so just like success won't bring you happiness for a, uh, as much or as long as you hope that it will, failure won't do the opposite. Um, uh, so, so there's um, uh, studies on people um, uh, uh, predicting how they would feel after the loss of a child, which is like the worst thing that could happen to you. And it turns out that like, sometime later, like you do feel normal again, um, because life goes on. And so this is called the focusing illusion, the, the thing you thinking that the future is going to be defined by this thing that happens now and not realizing that, like, you're going to do a bunch of stuff in the future, you have to wake up, and you're gonna brush your teeth. And like, there's emails to respond to, and there's a commute to do and, uh, and there's a wedding to go to. And all of this thing, all of these things have the effect of like keeping life more within the normal range. Now, obviously, that's not going to be 100% true for everybody all the time. Sometimes people really do have a bad thing happens to them and it like breaks them uh, and they need to be put back together in some way. Um, I think the other the opposite doesn't happen all that often, but like something good happens to someone and they're permanently better off forever. Uh, more often, that's the removal of something negative, like getting out of an abusive relationship, I think, can do this for someone or getting out of dire poverty. Um, so it's not to say that like nothing can happen, just right. that, that it's hard and it's less than we think. Well, and I've always brought up this, the, the, the lottery paraplegic thing as to me being something that's, uh, fairly depressing. Cause I don't think that there are so many people who are like inherently upbeat that are concerned about the bottom someday dropping out of that. That's sort of not a feature of being, you know, your default setting being mostly upbeat. It's more the rest of us who are going, yeah, you know, I'm not satisfied. I still, you know, like Bono, I still haven't found what I'm looking for, but all mm -hmm. I need is this one thing and then it'll be okay. And the, the takeaway that I've always taken from that, that study is, Sadly, no, if that's the way you feel right now, that's probably a death sentence. Mm -hmm. Unless, yes, unless you are currently, you know, being raised in uh, a Bane-like pit and have hopes <laughs> of one day escaping. Unless you have yeah. some really obvious external force making your life miserable, it is what it is. Which which yeah. um, leads me to uh, another element of your of your post. Um, you identify uh, one of the one of our problems as a species is that for all the advancements we have we've made, we still can't even put our finger on what makes us happy or the things that we might um, you know as a rule of thumb change to make ourselves happier. We know how to get in shape. We know how to have a healthier diet. We know how to be how to learn a foreign language. We don't have a tried and true method for making ourselves happy. Um, do you do you really believe that we are that piss poor at at that 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 is such a gigantic uh, blind spot? Like I feel like you have the last time you were here kind of spelled out a recipe for what you believe, you know, the the the, the trail to human contentment looks like. Hmm. Yeah, I I don't think we know nothing, and and I think a lot of what we know is received wisdom from a lot of humans living a lot of lives for generations and realizing like, oh, life is better when you share it with other people. Mm. Life is better when you feel like there's a, pro a point in you being alive. 
I think the thing that feels elusive about this is like you say those things, they just feel obvious. But uh, to really, to really, I think, like actually come to believe them in some way that makes your life different, they can't be told to you. Like they have to be experienced in some way. And what I think we don't know is like, well, how do you give that experience to someone? Um, this is, I think, part of what religion tries to do. Like it is, it is such an all encompassing experience in part because that's kind of the only way that you get to these realizations that like you can't get them from a book. No one can really tell them to you. They have to be experienced in a lot of different ways over a long period. And only then do you really come to think like, you know, it's right. Like I do need to get out of the rat race. Like uh, you can think of um, everybody's had a bad breakup. And after a bad breakup, everybody will, will tell you like, you know, it gets better. Like it does. But like that just doesn't mean anything to you. Like even if you 100 percent believe or think that you believe that like, yeah, I know I'm going to feel better doesn't make you feel any better then like you really have to live every day yeah. realizing like oh you know like today actually is a little bit less bad or like oh yeah i got through all today without thinking about the person who broke up with me and only then do you come to realize like it really does get better and i think at that point you can believe something that you like only believed cognitively before but didn't believe i guess with your soul um that's i think i think you really touched on it right there is that i i i've, I've long believed that the the you know we all um you know, the way that we respond to politics, for example, is like on such a gut level. And then we build all of these, you know, the, the, the more um, intellectual of us build all of these arguments and stuff on top of them. But it's not. And that's why it's so hard to change people's minds is because you're you're re they weren't, you know, once again, you can't reason people out of things that they that they weren't reasoned into. And I experience this on a daily basis. I have a, a 10 year old son and I'm trying desperately to put as much like wisdom in there as I can before he tunes me out. And he's a bright kid. And I know he knows what I'm saying. And I know he understands what I'm saying. And I know it's not going to make a goddamn bit of difference when he gets out there. But I can't stop trying to be like, look, dude, I can save you about 20 years of trouble if you would just listen to me. And it's not going to work. It can't. He'd, yeah. he'd be the lamest, yeah. He would be the lamest dude ever if it did work. Yeah. Uh, this, is, this is actually related to another thing I wrote about, like, the fact that we forget almost everything we ever, we ever learn. Yes. And like, so what is, what do we do about that? Right. And, and to me, the, the response is like, the point wasn't being able to list all the facts that you learned or all the pieces of advice that you got from your father. It was like getting a sense of like this ethereal, impossible to define vibe that, uh, that you, that your dad had. Um, and like, yeah, so some of this might survive and like, okay, I remember a few things that he said, but it really came from like, what it felt like to be his son. Right. Um, and right. I feel this with the great teachers that I've had. It's not that I can tell you what the lectures were that I got. It's that I can tell you what it felt like to be taught by them. Uh, and a lot of that, I can't even really verbalize. I can just like feel it. And I think that's actually what we try to transmit, what we should be thinking about what we're trying to transmit to people. But like, yeah, it isn't really about this one fact. It's, it's about what it felt like to get all these facts and to have a person who is trying to tell you this. I don't know. I'm not a dad, so maybe maybe I'm totally wrong here. No, but, no, no, no. Uh, I, that's really I, what I've gotten as a son. Well, I, I related very much to what you had to say about you, you argue in that in that post that the value of a university degree is largely vibe based, which yes. makes the increasing cost of college that much more <laughs> insulting. <laughs> And I get that because I actually I save all kinds of like memento stuff and I just moved a whole bunch of it. And I just so happened a week or two ago to be going through a notebook that I'd kept in college. And I'm like, Lincoln as statesman. 
Sounds great, dude. Yeah. Um, but in that case, I actually do remember uh, now that now that we're talking about it, I remember that that professor fairly well. But like, uh, is there is there not a better way to cut to the chase? Is there not a cheaper way to cut to the chase? Like, I mean, I I've long this is this is a separate conversation, kind of, but it kind of isn't. Is I'm under the impression that the way that we teach college was formed <clears throat> around the late ten hundreds. Uh, the, the, uh, until that point, monks and priests had been bogarting all the education and somebody said, Hey, if, if my son, the prince is going to be the king someday, of course we need to make him a great warrior and a great leader of men. Maybe it would help to give him a little bit of reading, writing, and arithmetic as well. So you have these cathedral schools that are not just for um, for uh, clergy. And then everybody else who's rich is like, well, I want to get my kids in there. And within about 150 years, we have uh, the university system popping up in, in Europe and, and elsewhere. I, I'm not going to pretend I know anything about the university system in Asia, et cetera. But at least in, in the Western world, and we still to this day are really, you know, outside of uh, business school or trade school, we're still training young clergy and princes to engage mm. and 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 uh and when you look at it that way you know the idea that it is as in any cir- circle socially acceptable to spend $150,000 or more getting a philosophy degree um when you could just read philosophy books and you could take the YouTube classes, like you just don't, there's just, yeah. there's just a free way to get that education. There's no reason for you to be spending that money. Like, I mean, I'm putting you on the spot here, but how would you redesign the entire system of higher education based on your um, conclusion that nobody's going to remember anything anyway? So we're just training people for how to transition out of being dependent children into being independent, functional, aspirational adults. Yeah, I think it would it would involve going through everything that we do and asking, like, to what uh, what is the vibe that people get from this? Mm. Um, so like, uh, so many classes that you take, um, the goal of the class is to figure out what the professor wants you to say, and then you say it, and then you get an A. And like, that is completely antithetical to what we should be trying to do. Cause you come away with the vibe of like, okay, in life, there are people who have power over you and they have whims and you succeed by satisfying their whims. Yeah. That may actually be true out in the world, but that's not the kind of world that we want to create. And so like anyone who creates that kind of environment in their classroom, like they got to go, uh, and so I guess what I would do is I would sit in these classrooms and be like, does it feel good to be in this classroom? Like, are the people in here fired up? Um, because they're not going to remember what they learned in here, but they will remember how they felt in here. Uh, and if they feel bad, like, they're going to come away being like, yeah, life's a cynical game. And like, yeah, I'm going to pay $150,000 for my kid to get this piece of paper that just says that they went to college, even though I know they're not actually going to have any more knowledge. It's just a big credential. Then like, man, that world sucks. I, I want a world where people are like, yeah, I went through this time in my life where like I learned that like, man, there, I don't there's so much that I don't know. I learned that I make assumptions about people that turn out to be wrong. Uh, I learned that like, oh, I, I really can do the things that I that I didn't realize that I could do. Um, like that is what I wish a college diploma meant rather than like you scored really well on some standardized tests. Uh, you paid a bunch of money and uh, and like you turn in the homework on time. Um because, I mean, what you just said just shows, I think, that there are like, there isn't, no one actually thinks that there's real education going on in these classrooms because you can get the same thing online for free and <laughs> no one cares if you do that. Right. So, like, it, that to employers is worth zero and this other thing is worth everything. 
So what's the difference? Uh, yeah, no, that's a really stunning because because the the internet's a real game changer. I would have said beforehand, you know, there's free public libraries. You can go and read all the books at literally zero cost, and there's a quiet air conditioned space space in which you can do that. But well, but you know, the professors, the blah blah blah. If I'm if I'm going to one of these big schools where I don't have one on one interaction with these people, I could literally. I'm sure I've never even checked. I'm sure I could find Harvard. You know, should I go to Santa Monica yeah. Community College and pay money, or should I watch a bunch of Harvard lectures for free on YouTube? Who can actually argue that the superior value is paying money to go to? With all due respect to Santa Monica Community College, I hear it's a pretty good school, right? So yeah. what the hell? It's just your it's your first demonstration that you have submitted to the overall order of things and are willing to pay the price to play the game, baby. Yeah. Yeah. When, uh, when I would have to hire, uh, summer research assistants, uh, they would apply from all over the world. When I was in grad school, people would come and work in a lab in the summer. And, and I saw why it's like this, that like, okay, you've got 200 applications. Um, this person went to Ohio state, this person went to Yale and just out the gate. I'm like, well, okay. I just kind of figured the person who went to Yale was smarter, but all they were doing was applying a selection effect to me. I didn't actually think that the person got a better education there. I mean, like, yeah, maybe the, the lectures were a little bit, but like they weren't better to the extent uh, that we feel like Yale is a better school than Ohio State. So really all I could have done is just like seen their standardized test scores. Like, uh, and did they do a bunch of extracurriculars? Like what was Yale doing for me uh, that I couldn't do for myself if I had their application materials? Uh, right. So yeah, it's unfortunately a big game. Um, right, 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 right. But you got to start somewhere. And the easiest thing to do mm -hmm. is to be able to, to throw away half of the pile. And, you know, I've spent time at Columbia. You spent, you know, you, you spend your life there. There's the smartest kid at Ohio State's way smarter than the dumbest kid at Columbia. That's, yeah, that's for, yeah. That's for yeah. darn sure. Yeah, the distributions overlap a lot. Yes. Yeah. Um, in uh, another of your recent posts, you describe yourself as a recovering frog eater. Uh, explain. Yeah. Yeah. Uh... Um, I, there, there's a, if you, if you Google productivity advice online, um, the vibe that you will get is, uh, like, oh yeah, you want to be more productive? Like you little creep. Yeah. I bet you like being lazy. Don't you like you're, you're a worthless piece of shit. Like, uh, you have to w learn how to work hard and how to like enslave your unconscious so that you can get more done. Now where's and that block? Cause that, that cause, cause that, that'll get me <laughs> off drudge. <laughs> uh, and literally there's this guy, I mean, there, there's a whole group of these people who make a bunch of money giving, I guess, motivational speeches or selling expensive courses online. And there's a guy who has his book called eat that frog or whatever. That is all like the way to get stuff done is to do all the stuff you hate first. Right. And like, actually, I don't think there's a crazy idea. Like if you do have stuff that you need to get done, whatever. But the, the vibe behind it is like life is suffering. And the only way through it is like to accept it and uh, and like eat a bunch of frogs. And um, and I think I felt that way, especially all through college. I was a person who's like really good at doing this kind of stuff mm -hmm. that people are like, oh, you can get this big fellowship if you just like do this. I was like. Did you say big fellowship? Like, I'd love to to jump through your hoops, please. How high? Like, set them on fire. I'll do it. <laughs> um, it's a bad way to live life. And I think it's a bad philosophy of life that, that like, yeah, life is going to be bad. And so, like, <laughs> here are all the tips to, like, uh, do all the bad stuff as much as you can. I just hated it. Um, so what the post was in part about is, like, why do we subscribe or why are we so susceptible to people who are like, in order to be more productive, like you have to be a better person. Like the, the thing that's wrong is you, um, like you have to eat more frogs. Um, 
And I think it in part comes from a theory about human nature that I think is wrong, which is that like the humans in their natural state are like lazy and they don't want to do anything. Um, and the only way that we become productive is by like destroying the unconscious urges inside us that make us want to like eat Pringles and watch Netflix and impose our conscious control that knows like we have to go to the gym and we have to respond to emails and we have to work really hard that which i think is totally wrong like humans first of all aren't naturally anything it depends on what situation you put them in um and second of all this is wrong but like that is not how the human unconscious works that in fact like most of the problems in your life are solved without your conscious interference uh everything from how do we keep our digestion going to like how do we walk down the street without falling over? Like those basic things. But even a lot of higher order decision making is, is entirely beyond your conscious awareness. And it's only when your unconscious has a problem or when something doesn't make sense or is more complicated that it gets kicked up to your conscious awareness. Like this is how the mind works. Ideally, uh, I mean, it's kind of like driving a ship on autopilot. You want it to do what it does all the time, except when there's a problem. Right. And, and so if, if, if a system only alerts you when there's a problem, you're going to go like, man, all the system does is tell me that there's problems not realizing like 99% of the time it's flying the ship exactly where it needs to go. It's just when it runs into something that it needs you to do something about it, which is why I think we think that we are naturally lazy and bad uh, when we're not. Well, it seems like we naturally are what just actually happens in nature. That's the nature of mm -hmm. nature. So I think most people to some extent or another fit the, almost everybody fits a description of some days you feel like being lazy. And then around two o'clock or so you go, man, this is, I, I, there's gotta be more than, I gotta get off this couch. <laughs> and then sometimes you work really hard and you go, man, I'm really burning my burning the candles at both ends. I, I need a little break. It seems like our nature, if we can be said to have one is to be as productive as we need to be to get all the things that we need in many of the mm -hmm. things that we would like, but probably not all of the things are little heart desires, you know, to, I don't, I don't know what it's like and I don't want to pretend to know what it's like to be, you know, living in a more primitive society, but looks like the king has a lot of work to do. And yeah, it would be great to be the king, but if you really think about what I would have to do to, and what I would risk to organize an uprising and attempt a coup, maybe I'm okay being a middle-class primitive human being because that, cause, cause that, that feels about right, except when I'm uh, drunk, <laughs> you know, except when I'm mm -hmm. in, in a crazier state of mind. Um, here, here, here's my takeaway from what you wrote, and let me know if you agree or disagree. I do think there's something to be said for in order to get the things, not the things that we're told that we should want or that we tell ourselves that we want, the things that we want. You want to um, write a book that uh, will be worthy of people reading and keeping on their bookshelf and passing down to generations, and there has to be some portion of that. The, the thing that you really love, there has to be some portion of that that you don't love as much, whether it's, um, uh, uh, you know, doing the work that you need to do in the meantime to keep yourself afloat until you can write that, whether it's talking to a literary agent to tell you one thing one day and another thing tomorrow, whether it's going on stupid podcasts to get your name out there, there has to be a bit of it that you don't like. That's the frog that you do need to eat to accomplish your larger goal. But if you find that your diet is becoming too high in frogs and not high enough in things that aren't the uh the, the the things that you just need to get out of the way to get if 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 you're just getting the stuff that you don't like out of the way from nine until five or later every day perhaps you should consider looking elsewhere 
for your professional direction. Yeah, I think that's right. That uh, it it's not that um, uh, you should strive to live a life where you never have to do anything you don't want to do. I think there's something uh, edifying in like being able to do things that, that you wouldn't choose to do otherwise. I think it's just that people do more of them than they would have to do otherwise because they think that the problem is themselves. That like that like yeah, life is eating frogs, and so I just need to figure out how to choke down more of them. And if you believe that, you'll end up eating more than you really have to. And so if you work a job that that it's like, yeah, at the end of the day, I can't do anything other than sit motionless and watch images play across the screen. And like, if you believe that like that's what life is and the way it has to be, like, man, that's that's a rough way to go. But like, I, I don't think that should be anyone's natural state. And obviously, like some people need to do stuff for money. Uh, I, I need to do that, too. Uh, but like, I think there's a better ratio. And you only get there if you believe that, like, it's not the goal of life to eat as many frogs as possible. Yeah. What do you think about everybody's uh, it's again, I try to reserve judgment. I've already shown my hand that I, I, I am judging, but as a, as a, an older person um, gazing with some bewilderment at a younger generation, um, the quiet quitting phenomenon mm -hmm. seems like it ties into this where the person feel like they can kind of like have their frog and not eat it too you know which is i can just lay low and be basically productive um like just do you have do you have thoughts on this for people who aren't familiar good for you you know the idea is um i'm i'm uh, i have given up on my job but i'm not going to tell my boss that i'm going to do the bare minimum and i'm going to keep um uh you know collecting a paycheck and hopefully some benefits as well uh until they discover me and when and if they do i'll either raise my game just enough to keep their and just keep my job or i'll get fired and i'll probably go repeat that pattern somewhere else um on one hand i hear that and i go that's not that's not for me i don't want to live a life like that on the other hand i think the realistic part of me realizes that probably there isn't meaningful exciting engaging work out there commensurate with the number of people that we have in our society. So where, if, if, if at all, do you think the quiet quitting phenomenon or conversation fits in the frog eating conversation? Yeah, I would say that uh, if you're the kind of person who hears about that and you're like, man, these lazy people who need to figure out how to eat more frogs, yeah. uh, I guess that's the kind of person I would disagree with. That, yeah, that I'm right. like, what are these jobs that you would feel that way about? Because I don't think that it's true that people actually feel that way naturally. I think people want to feel useful. I agree. Um, and I so agree. the kind of person and they're who's happy, like... And, and even if they don't know that they feel that way, they're happier when they actually arrive at that place. Yes. Yes. And like, it is really hard to find the thing that you could like to do that is also useful, that will also pay you a paycheck. And like, I, I've got this like naive belief that there is that out there for everybody. Not perfectly, but like something in at least that ballpark. And a big thing that stops us from finding it is the belief that it doesn't exist. Mm. Um, or go through all these steps of, of high school and college where you're trained to believe that it doesn't exist, that like satisfy the whims of the gatekeepers and they'll give you the things that you need to survive. Like if you learn that in, in high school and you learn that in your college classes, like, well, why would you look for a job uh, where you have anything better than that? Like, why wouldn't you just be like, yeah, life is suffering and I suffer in exchange for money and that's my life. Um I know, I know that it's it's a it's a uh, an idealistic belief, and maybe it's naive. Um, well, I'll give, but... I'll give I'll give you my idealistic naive twist on that, which is a, a slightly lower barrier to to being true. Which is that if you real if you think, man, there's got to be there's got to be more to life than this. I'm willing to bet there is for you. 
you know, mm-hmm. that, 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 that inner voice that won't shut up is tapped into some truthy vibe that probably not 100% across the board. Yeah. But if you really are just like, I don't want to work, I'd be perfectly happy to not work, but I have to, and this is what I do. And the absence of negatives, my boss isn't that bad. The work isn't that tedious. Well, yeah, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe quiet quitting is a good fit for you. And that's fine yeah. too. I'll shed no tears for the corporation that is losing, you know, a modicum of your former productivity. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I've got a friend who is a software developer, but his dream job is doing maintenance at a campground. The dude just loves digging ditches and mending fences. <laughs> and uh, and I just want to be like, I mean, obviously you make less money doing that than you yeah. do being a software developer, but you can live that life. Like people do get paid to do that labor. Uh, and I just think he would actually be better off if he did that. And like, whatever, you can you can make your, your trade-offs and be like, well, actually, you know, I want to make sure I provide for my family and I need to make this amount of money. Um, but the idea that we would never even consider the mm-hmm. fact that like, well, I could do something better than doing campground maintenance. So I must, um, like, man, I, uh, I really respect someone who's like, I could do something better, but I just love dig- digging ditches, man. Uh, I love hanging hammocks. Uh, man, that's a person who knows how to live. Yeah. That's some good living right there. Nobody's going to debate that. Uh, finally, before I let you go, um, you, uh, it should be pointed out a, trained professional psychologist uh, recently posted a blog entitled psychology might be a big stone stinking load of hogwash and that's just fine um explain <laughs> explain what you what you mean by because i mean we've all been humoring you this whole time we've known you adam we all know that you are engaged in a pseudoscience yeah exactly uh mostly what i do is look at the bumps on people's foreheads <laughs> and uh uh prognosticate their um career paths uh it's sort of a long story, but there's this replication crisis in psychology. It's been going on a while. Uh, you say people call you out on this. Like, you, really? This is so... You you run in very rarefied Upper West Side of Manhattan <laughs> circles. People are like, psychologist, don't think I haven't heard about your replication scandal. <laughs> yeah, well, you hang out with grad students, you're going to run into this. I got you. Yeah, uh, makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah. Um, and so so the short version is uh it turned out that a lot of the studies that have been published probably don't replicate meaning we we try to do the same thing and we get different we don't get the same results we get no results but there's no difference between the conditions or whatever there's a lot that's been said about this like oh we didn't run them the right way or like we didn't select them the right way i think those criticisms are valid um but but i think there's a big misunderstanding about like what actually goes on in science um that, that I think only by having that misunderstanding would you feel this apocalyptic way about this replication crisis. One of these things being uh, that you think like, if you think that we were born into an era of like science and enlightenment, you're certainly true compared to the past, but I personally still think we live in the dark ages. Like we are still groping around in the dark, trying to understand the world around us. And I point out a few of these things in the post, like physicists don't know if hot liquid freezes faster or, co- or slower than cold liquid. Um, feels like a basic question like we can't yeah, what, explain what, what, what did you mean by that and i love so what we're going in pretty granular detail through your blog yeah. posts that should in no way dissuade people from reading them for themselves if only because of all of the fun asides and hyperlinks that you include what that <laughs> what the the hell and, and 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 the one that struck me from that same point that you're making is the fact that we all know that uh for physics to work there needs to be like even more antimatter than matter but we haven't actually yeah. found any yet that's like that's that's yeah. 
the future generations will look on that as a pretty glaring hole in our in our contemporary understanding. What the hell do you mean we don't know if, of course, cold liquid freezes faster than hot liquid? Yeah, you'd think. But uh, in like the 60s or 70s, some high school student, uh, they were like making ice cream or something and, and you boil the milk and then you put it in the... Uh, in the freezer and uh for, he was like late or something and he put the like the hot milk in the freezer and everyone else had waited for it to cool and then put it in and his froze faster and you could read this whole article about like physicists like trying to get to the bottom of like well, is that true because obviously it seems like well a hotter thing has to pass through all the temperatures to get to the cold uh and like it it's it's really complicated uh and i think it's a great story because it shows that like even these these questions that seem like they're so obvious and like we should already know the answer are not obvious and we don't know the answer um i think a, a good equivalent in my field is like uh if you feel really bad if uh you can go to a doctor and the doctor will be like well we could talk to you for a while and that sometimes makes people feel better we can give you a pill and the pill sometimes makes people feel better we could electrocute your brain, um, and that sometimes makes people feel better. The rates for all of these are not great. Actually, shock therapy does the best for extreme depression anyway. Um, but like someone just feeling really bad, uh, we don't have a really reliable good way of making most of those people feel better. Uh, like it's hard to distinguish the, those effects from placebo effects. Like it's there, but it's much smaller than you might think it would be. Huh. And I just hope that in 500 years, that's not going to be the case. Um uh, and anyway, so if you think that like all these questions should be settled, yeah, you're going to be really upset when you find out that like some of the studies don't replicate. But if you think like we are not that different, uh, well, obviously we understand a lot more than we did a thousand years ago. But there's so much like there, the vastness of science is so huge that that it's like an additional thimble out of the ocean is what we understand. Uh, then I think you might be like, okay, look, like we're really groping around in the dark. Um, and like, it's all right if we didn't know some of these things, uh, like science takes a long time and we didn't happen to be born in the era where all the science was settled. Um, that's one thing. Uh, uh, another is I think people don't realize, uh, what these studies actually are and that a lot of them don't really build on each other. And it doesn't really matter whether they're true or not. This doesn't make me popular among my colleagues, but a lot of the studies we replicate, it's like, I didn't care the first time. I don't care that it was done the second time. It's really hard to know in psychology, which is a really young field, like what really matters and so we run these studies where we're like, do people find jokes funnier when you put a, a, a pen in their teeth versus their lips? And like, we have a reason why we're doing this. But like, at the end of the day, it is a silly thing that we're, it doesn't, I personally don't think it matters that much which way that turns out. But that was kind of a poster child for like, all psychology is made up. And I'm like, I think all psychology is kind of silly. Uh, it's a better critique. Right. Um, and we're really trying to do psychology that isn't silly. But, but again, like, this is science. We got to do a lot of silly stuff to find out what, uh, what's worth working on. Yeah, the answers are always obvious in retrospect, but at this point you could you could throw a dart at a direction you should be going in and you know there 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 is there is no treasure map that you're that you're following. Yeah. So, I mean, this is an impossible question to answer, but like what percent you know based on what you said so far, what percentage of psychology assuming there is a total body objectively out there somewhere that can be worked out? Have we worked out? Is it 5%? Is it 50%? Now, fast food restaurants, the color scheme almost always includes red. And I gather that they don't just think, they know that red makes people want to eat uh, hand-breaded fried chicken sandwiches. More than <laughs> half of the apps on my phone have blue icons. Somebody doesn't think they know that blue is 
a, a, the color that makes people want to use a web-based service. So clearly we, because, because you know, money talks, bullshit walks, etc. At some point, somebody does need to act on psychological quote-unquote truths and actually be able to get the result that the, the pointy-headed guys down at the lab told them they were going to get, right? So we do mm-hmm. know something. How much do we know? Um, I would say like 0.001%. I think we have so much left to go. And and even things like you just said, I don't think those truths will remain true forever. Um, so this is also a thing about humans is that they change over time and they adjust to the things that you're doing to them. And so something that's true today in 2022 might not be true 10 years from now. Uh, If every app is blue, well, then it doesn't matter whether all the apps are blue or, or people get used to it. So I, I feel this way about like, when the internet apocalypse was happening, like, I don't know, 10 years ago or something, when every article was like a BuzzFeed article and, and like every article was a listicle and it was like, this is this is going to eat the internet from the inside out. And and like, we kind of still have that. But also what happened is people got used to picking up on clickbait. And now when you see it, you're like, oh, like, I don't want to, like every once in a while, it's like, okay, that one got me. But, right. but most <laughs> of the time you, you just keep on scrolling because you know the tricks now. Right. I think it's a beautiful thing about humans is, uh, you know, you try, you try to manipulate them, uh, and they manipulate you right back. Um, so yeah, that's also why I think that number is so low of the percentage that we know right now, which to me, to be clear, that's not a criticism. I think that's so exciting. Like yeah. I would rather be in a field where there's so much left to discover than in a field where it's like, yeah, we're just dotting the I's and crossing the T's. I don't think any of the fields are actually like that. They always just feel like that. Uh, but that is another post. Yeah, well, and 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 if what you're saying is true that so much is yet to be discovered, it means you'll have plenty of stuff to write about every two weeks at experimentalhistory.substack.com. Adam uh, Mastriani, I know you have more important things to do, so go get to them. Thank you as always for your time, and uh, come see us again sometime soon. Thanks for having me. I got to go uh, touch some skulls. 